Welcome to the Responsible Finance Podcast, the official podcast of the Responsible Finance and Investment Foundation. I am Blake Good, the CEO of the RFI Foundation, a global nonprofit organization working to build awareness, promote research, and encourage convergence in the responsible finance industry, including socially responsible investment, ESG, Islamic finance, and impact investment. The purpose of the Responsible Finance Podcast is to connect you to the leaders behind innovative approaches to creating positive social impact in responsible finance. This month, we are featuring an interview with Stella Cox, CBE, Managing Director of DDCAP Group. As you'll hear, Stella has been involved with the Islamic finance industry for many years and has been a consistent champion for Islamic finance, responsible finance, and women in the financial sector. She was a member of the UK government's task force on Islamic finance that advised the government on its debut Sukuk issuance, one of the first from a non-Muslim majority country's sovereign issuer. Her other contributions to the development of Islamic finance are too numerous to mention in full here. We'll cover a few in our interview, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the RFI podcast. Could you share a bit about your background and how you began working in Islamic finance? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Um, I've been working in Islamic finance for over 30 years, and it dates back to the mid-1980s when I joined a UK merchant bank called Climate Benson. Um, and as a, a new post-educational um, uh, starter, I was taken into the corporate banking, the international corporate banking team, where I joined um, the Japan corporate banking desk. And the Islamic finance desk was actually adjacent to the desk that I was, I was working on. Um, interesting, actually, that a, a medium-sized British merchant bank like Climewatch had already be engaged at that time uh, with Islamic financial sector institutions, which were were fledgling, I would say, in their own right, but it had been, um, and the bank had been working with those banks and also their shareholders and stakeholders since the late 1970s when they were they were formed, and that was the result of long-term connectivity that the bank had to merchant families in the Middle East. So as a result of that, I joined the team, and I was part of a small team that was developing trade and commodity-based financing structures that were offering... Islamic banks, so the early Islamic banks, access to suitably structured short-term assets and also some liquidity management solutions that enabled them to deploy, I guess, predominantly retail-based deposits that they were mobilizing um, as, as sort of commercially and retail-focused uh, banks. Um, and over time, I started there in 1984. Um, the focus of the bank moved on to support uh, its development of different Sharia-compliant asset classes for its customers, um, including in the 1990s, the first Sharia-compliant global equity fund, um, and latterly moving on into um, a diverse suite of, of, of treasury services and products. So it was a fortuitous and exciting time for me. Um, it took me uh, a while, I think, to gain access to actually working on the Islamic finance desk. As I said, initially, I started with a di within a different international banking team. But because of the proximity um, of the Islamic finance team, finally, I managed to, to get a move. And it seemed that that team was a small and vibrant community that were working across all sorts of different disciplines. Um, I was with the bank for 14 years. And during that time, uh, I worked across uh, pretty much all of its divisions, excepting private clients, 
Uh, so I started off in international banking. I did a tour of asset management. I worked in international corporate finance, and I ended up doing seven years as a divisional director in treasury capital markets. Uh, but throughout that time, my overarching remit was responsibility for the Middle East and for Islamic financial services. And then in 1998, I left the bank to become one of the founders of uh, DDCAP. With DDCAP, could you explain what the role DDCAP plays within Islamic finance uh, and how does the ECOS platform fit into what DDCAP is doing in Islamic finance? DDCAP, as I just mentioned, was actually formed back in 1998. So uh, shocking as that is, and old as that makes me feel, we've recently passed our 21st anniversary or birthday. So I guess in some ways you could say that maybe we feel that we've come of age. I was, as I said, one of the founders, and um, we formed DDCAP because at that point, and we're going all the way back to the late 1990s, so essentially uh, I guess we're still looking at an Islamic financial services industry that was primarily servicing um, a bank and FI marketplace um, from the Middle East. And we saw an opportunity to create a firm that would act as intermediary for that wholesale Islamic financial marketplace. And initially, after we formed DDCAP, we worked to develop connectivity between banks and financial institutions. So our objective was really serving to improve and support interbank liquidity flows within our global marketplace, but also to extend the global footprint of the marketplace by introducing new institutional names to it. Uh, in doing that, we felt that we'd be enhancing general Islamic financial sector capacity and we'd be assisting um, you know, still those fairly early stage Islamic banks and financial institutions to diversify counterparty exposures, credit risk, as well as developing that additional capacity. So as a result of the expanded connectivity, um, some years after we came into existence, we were asked to include trade execution services within our offering. And most likely as a result of that, we know it, we're, free, we're frequently referred to as a broker. But what I would like to say is as a firm, DDCAP prefers not to describe ourselves in that way. Certainly we facilitate physical asset supply for a broad Islamic financial sector requirement. And that now encompasses not just treasury services that I've alluded to, but it also covers capital markets, asset management across a range of asset classes, retail banking services and products, and also wholesale Islamic insurance. Um, but we do it as a principle and as a party to the actual transactional arrangement, and that serves to meet the stipulations of our own Sharia supervisory board, as well as the stipulations of our clients and the market in general. And that is quite distinct from the role that might be envisaged of a, of a traditional inter-dealer broker. And also trade execution is just one facet of DDCAP services. Um, we're fortunate, I think, to have a team of experienced and knowledgeable financial sector professionals within the firm, um, predominantly bankers, uh, we aren't brokers, we are, are, are bankers or we come from the corporate advisory space and we've got three physical presences. We're headquartered in London, as most people know, but we're also in the DIFC in Dubai where we've been since 2008. And now since the end of 2018, we're also in Kuala Lumpur um, where we were authorized by the authorities at the end of last year. And we're fortunate to have um, a global client base and we have transactional activity across most continents. Our clients are predominantly institutional, so they include banks and other financial institutions, asset managers, government authorities, um, funds too, um, and they also include uh, insurance sector firms and uh, a few pension funds. Um, Could you explain uh, 
how how technology fits into that process and how how you developed ethos and, and what it is specifically within EDCAP's offering and, and how it uh, differs from how people traditionally understand what you do? I'd be very happy to do that. Um, quite a long story. Some people might call it a labor of love. In fact, in terms of, of what we now call ethos AFP or ethos, for us within the firm, um, and a lot of us have been there throughout its, its lifespan, it's, it's been quite an amazing development story that's spanned the past 15 years. Um, and you know our, our controlling shareholder is is uh, a private group called IPGL that initially founded ICAP, um, which they sold a few years ago and became a leading conventional marketing to dealer broker. And then they moved into other new technologies with their second public um, business, which is called Next, which has also recently um, been sold to uh, the CME. Um, and so. Our controlling shareholder knows a lot about financial technology and innovation. And when we first said to them, um, and they've been a great shareholder, they've been consistent and patient and steady, and they've supported all of our innovations and our ideas. And we said that we wanted to bring technology into our industry. I remember that our, our senior non-executive said, yep, that's fine, dig in, it'll take you 15 years, at which point we laughed. But actually, it, it has done. It's been a story for us for the past 15 years. And we decided back in 2003 um, that we wanted to bring uh, technology and automated process into um, the very manual um, and labor intensive treasury sector environment that we were providing our services to. And why did we do that? Well, actually, um, we were receiving suggestions from our clients. Uh, that they would actually like to move from manual process into into automated efficiency as well. And they were saying that they wanted to improve operational efficiencies, enhance transparency around their transactions. And we also have to remember that the Islamic banks were still operating off of vast amounts of wholesale liquidity, um, and they were being allocated to trade and commodity and other asset-based, physically asset-based transactions. So as a service provider, it certainly made sense to us as a business that we should look to enhance our own technology provision at that time um, because of the extent of the heavy, I guess, manual intervention and also the paper intensive nature of the processes that surrounded um, the trade flows and the validations by the Sharia Supervisory Board. So we commenced the build of our platform 15 years ago to encompass Sharia and also business focused operational requirements. It hasn't always been an easy process, but I think in terms of trade execution for Islamic Treasury services, we've been fortunate because from an industry perspective, I know we talk a lot about Sharia divergence, but in this part of, of our industry, we're now in a reasonably unified form. If you look at initiatives by, for example, the International Islamic Financial Market to create documentary standards through um, the Master Agreement for Treasury Placement, you know, there is a general consensus around how things might happen and be processed, and that's helped us um, to build our functionality, our automated functionality. But the nature of Islamic finance means that we as a firm, and despite having our own five-person Sharia supervisory board, um, with representatives from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Malaysia, we're still subject to the individual requirements of our institutional client base. Um, and I mentioned before that globally that runs into hundreds of names. 
So we did, when we were embarking upon building um, an automated platform, we identified divergence still of requirement across regions and within regions to an extent across countries, because now, you know, we're going back 15 years and we haven't reached the point of operational consensus that we did, that we sort of um, enjoy now. So we approached our build geographically um, and we looked to obtain consensus for platform development within individual institutions. Then we pushed that out to markets, countries, regions, and we actually started in the UAE, um, which in fact we started in Abu Dhabi and we started with Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank and also in Dubai with Dubai Bank, which at that point was converting its conventional business to Sharia compliant. It was becoming a Sharia compliant bank and Dubai Bank's now I think part of Emirates Bank Group. So those two banks and their executive and their Sharia supervisory board were really steering us through this. So our build was a patient one. Um, and 10 years after we started, we were probably only at 30% automated in terms of trade execution. And then in 2015, we suddenly saw this huge increase in appetite across the institutional market, particularly in the Middle East, for automation. And our client base, who were probably something like 30% automated process, and we were still looking at, at, at manual documented processes for the rest of our transactional flow. And we suddenly moved up and, you know, we're above 98% now on automation, maybe even a little more. So in terms of developing technology for us, that's been really, truly exciting because we've now been able to increase our own functionality and develop features such as full straight through processing with our platform. And clients tell me that we're the first to offer that in, in a complete sense to the marketplace. In terms of, of, of how we put that together, DDCAP's, for the Islamic space, DDCAP's own Sharia supervisory board um, have been immensely helpful over the last six or seven years, as have other leading names and luminaries from the global Sharia and academic community. Um, and they've been engaged with the development of ethos since, since the beginning. And there are some globally renowned Sharia scholars who have actually been our, our, our platform testers and users, and that, that's how supportive they've been. And as part of the ongoing audit of DDCAP services, our own SSB, uh, Sharia Supervisory Board, regularly meets to review the platform, its transactions, and the underlying supporting documentation. One of the more recent developments, and it shows how these things can evolve from you know, an independent um, technology proposition that's coming from, in global senses, a small firm into something more significant. Um, We've looked more recently at the opportunity to engage with independent third-party companies who also provide services to the same client base as DDCAP and have their own platforms, um, maybe so that Sharia integrity is not compromised or perhaps because there hasn't been a thought of integration. An example of that is at the end of last year where DDCAP and Refinitiv, which was formerly Thomson Reuters financial and risk business, entered into a partnership to provide banks and financial institutions with an integrated, fully automated platform for Sharia-compliant treasury transactions. What that means for the industry is that for the first time, um, the Islamic interbank trades that banks have historically executed across the Refinitiv or the Thomson Reuters platforms are traded simultaneously and are integrated with the trade-based transactions that our clients of DDCAP execute across the ethos platform. So as well as benefiting from the Sharia state's sustainability and the responsible automated screening abilities that ethos has, clients are now assured of complete operational efficiency. And in terms of absolute Sharia compliance, there's no risk of short sale of any other trade or, or, or any other violation of trade sequencing that may result in a transactional 
um, situation being contrary to the stipulations of um, Sharia Supervisory Board. So that's lowering operational risk and lowering the cost and labor intensity of the process. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we try and pay attention to all things. I mean, during a transaction life, life cycle, the integrated platform and, and ethos on its own ensures that the completion of individual trade procedures are completed in such a way that they are in accordance with documented requirements. So we mean overarching Sharia stipulation. Um, but also assets made available to our clients for purchase via ethos um, are subjected with a Sharia focused screening process that's overlaid with the requisite governance, compliance and sanctions based protocols that are upheld by CDCAP and its clients. Um, and for further reassurance, because, you know, we're a service provider, so our business is all about providing assurance to the market, making sure everybody is comfortable with our, with our substance as well as the form of our transactions. I think that's, that's a, at the heart of everything that we do. And so in addition to um, maintaining the automated validation, which we think enhances transparency in its own right, um, we also make sure that we have the Sharia supervisory board that are conducting the regular Sharia-based processes in relation to the transactions and, and uh, endorsing those. But we also um, subject ourselves to a review by a major global advisory in accordance with the international standard on related services 4400, which is published by the International Auditing and Assurance Standards Board. Um, and that review is conducted on our behalf in combination with the sampling, the ongoing sampling by the Sharia Supervisory Board. So if I had to describe it simply, I'd say it's a review of two strands, substance and form, to make sure that both are appropriate. Um, and, you know, for us, it's, it's a pillar of doing business. It's, it's another um, governance measure that enables us to say to our clients and our marketplace, this is how we want to do our business. Um, and ethos and the technology that we have hopefully in their minds now enhances that as well. And in terms of how how that platform would be useful for for your clients who are not coming from a, a Sharia compliant focus within the responsible finance field, is there, is, there, uh, is there a value for them as well? It's a really interesting question um, and I have to say that from what I've told you so far, it, it's it's apparent. I think the client concerns and considerations help to inform DDCAP's initiatives. Um, so literally all of our developments have been in, in consultation with our clients. And it's those same requirements, I think, that caused us to establish the Sharia Supervisory Board. And actually, we didn't do that until 2012. And for us, it was an additional governance protocol in the interest of enhanced transparency. So prior to that, we felt that as a wholesale market intermediary, it was sufficient to be subjected to our clients' own Sharia stipulations. But I think we all know that the world is ever evolving and the financial sector certainly moves on. And we realized it was better for us, our clients and the industry, if we enhanced our own governance protocols and we provided that additional assurance, as I've mentioned, through the ongoing oversight of our own Sharia supervisory board and then the ISRS 4400. Um, you know, and other things that we do, validation of the automation through the Cyber Essentials accreditation program that shows that the security arrangements around our technology are suitably robust. Um, so it's that sort of level of approach and those, that same consideration of client concerns 
that I think now inform the development of, of what we call DDCAPT SRA initiative. So that's our sustainable and responsible actions initiative and policies. And it's true that as a firm, we aspire to connect the global Islamic financial market responsibly. And we certainly also as a firm, we support awareness of the business and the ethical case for responsible finance. And DDCAP, in the same way that it recognized that in terms of Sharia validation, of substance, um, of transparency, the market and the client needed a little more. Um, DDCAP recognizes that organizations and firms across our industry are working as hard as we are to translate their own vision into responsible and sustainable policies and procedures so that they in turn are producing positive social and environmental outcomes as well as delivering financial results. So what I would say is that we as a firm are actively engaging with other stakeholders to encourage those initiatives. And we're engaging with our shareholders in a program of awareness and making sure that we have their ongoing commitment and, and buy-in to further evolving our strategies and our intentions. We're taking it through our personnel to our clients and even consulting with our market counterparties, our vendors, um, and even third-party providers of professional advisory services to the group, to the DDCAP group. So if we look at ethos, um, and I use that as a practical illustration, initially what we did in ethos, the build started based upon Sharia stipulation. And financial sector has changed a lot in the last 15 years, and embedding regular governance controls into ethos became a prerequisite. Clients wanted us to do that. And so initially clients were looking at geographic screens for commodities and that was in response to their own regular financial sector governance requirements to broader legal and regulatory considerations and issues such as sanctions concerned. So we then had a combination of clients who were asking us to screen um, our commodity and our asset and inventory base for um, on a Sharia-based process, others who are looking at regular financial governance protocols. Um, but during the past five years, as we've expanded our own scope and we've looked at our internal corporate policies, um, we've added to the screen. So, for example, we have looked as a firm at the impact of what we do and we've factored in social and environmental considerations. So when we're working with commodities, for example, are there any social or environmental factors that mean we won't engage in certain commodity markets or with certain commodity counterparties? Or are we looking at the exchanges that we are members of and, and, and how they set out their sustainable and responsible policies? So that's all become an internal corporate consideration. Um, and there are some things that clients might like us to do to facilitate certain asset classes. And we won't do that because it's contrary to internal or corporate policy. But really interestingly, during the past two years, we've started to see client stipulation um, move into this process. So where initially we were looking at addressing Sharia considerations and removing asset classes that were repugnant to the Muslim faith, you know, those screens will always remain a priority. But we're now looking at the behest of our clients at environmental factors and social factors. If we're looking at hard commodities and metals, we're looking at mining practices and we're looking at social welfare in the, in, in the, in the labor force and we're looking at, at the impact of conflict and other environmental considerations. 
So we're having to build those into our screening processes. And actually, we are still flexible enough around ethos that we can listen to what clients are telling us bilaterally. And at the end of the day, as I said to you already, it's, we're a service provider. So DDCAP's role is to listen to the demands and the requirements of the market and to act accordingly. So in terms of our own commitment to sustainable and responsible actions, that's being reinforced on an ongoing basis um, across our own corporate environment and infrastructure, but also through our business offerings and services and our engagement with third parties, as I mentioned. So our contractual undertakings now with our clients and vendors uh, openly state and confirm our own adherence to sustainable and responsible actions. And we advise our counterparties, so again, that we want to be transparent, um, that we'll spread awareness by promoting responsible practice within our own actions. And we've developed some language that we put into our standard terms and conditions of business to reflect that. Um, we also recognize there are many facets to sustainable and responsible finance. Um, and as part of our commitment, we're encouraging and supporting initiatives to promote best practices um, in the industry, in the financial and professional services industry as a whole. And so that would include the membership in RFI Foundation and the Principles for Responsible Investment and other initiatives like that? Yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely would. Um, because it's interesting, you know, people say to us, well, you are an intermediary, you're, you're not managing assets. Um, but we say, well, you know, we still aspire to connect our global Islamic financial market footprint in a responsible way. And we can best do that as an intermediary by supporting awareness of the business and ethical case for responsible finance. So we recognize um, that organizations and firms across the industry are looking to take a similar approach. And we're making sure that we do that across our own business um, in the way that we act within the firm, in the way, as I've mentioned already, that we engage within clients. And even when we look at our business and systems offerings, we can do that across our transactional processes. But it's very important that as ethos is, is such a, a focal point now of our service offering, that its functionality is integrated within our corporate policy formation for, for SRA. So in terms of our commitment to, at DDCAT to developing a more sustainable, equitable and prosperous world, um, we support the view that those in business have to adopt their own strategies so that they're delivering social and environmental incomes as well as financial results. And our own policies for SRA have certainly been shaped by recent multinational initiatives to promote responsibility and sustainability and increase awareness of environmental, social, and, and corporate governance concerns. And you mentioned PRI and RFI, and we are. We're um, a signatory to PRI and uh, an observer member of RFI Foundation, and, and probably our alignment, because RFI Foundation has been, has been born out of Islamic financial sector considerations and a desire within our industry to better connect and explore um, collaboration and perhaps some levels of convergence with other SRI subsets. So that alignment is probably closest to our core business offering. And I would say the ethics that underline our, our company in terms of its infrastructure um, and our, our practice. Um, 
as far as the PRI signatory status is concerned, I think there are more than 1,400 PRI signatories, but at the time that we became a signatory, and I think it's probably still the case now, we were the only intermediary or the only provider of asset facilitation services um, for Sharia compliant products to become a PRI signatory. Um, we also are committed to contributing in a modest way, given the size of, of our firm, to the targets and the objectives that are set within um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And you know, there are a lot of principles of PRI. There are six principles and there are 17 Sustainable Development Goals and obviously all are commendable on their own merits. But like most firms, in the interest of our own focus and also ensuring proactivity, I would say, um, but also trying to endeavor uh, that medium-term achievement is there and we can measure it in terms of our positive impact contribution towards PRI's principles and also the SDG. We've elected to prioritize a few and deliver against a smaller number. Um, and in terms of the PRI, there are six principles. There are three that we choose and we think are relevant to our, our business. Um, and we do look at, at principle one, where we'll incorporate ESG issues into analysis and decision-making processes. That is more relevant to us um, and how we, we execute and develop our own businesses rather than looking at managing assets for clients. But I think it, it translates into a direct contribution that we can make. Um, certainly, principle five of PRI, working together to enhance effectiveness, um, that's something that we're committed to. And I think through our business offerings and also the way in which we engage outside of commercial practice with the wider industry demonstrates that. And reporting, so principle six of PRI is to report on activities and to disclose progress towards implementation of the principles. And PRI has adopted mandatory reporting by the signatories, but we started to report on a voluntary basis. Um, which in some ways can be challenging actually because we've even found as a signatory of PRI as a non-asset owner, as an intermediary, responding um, to uh, the annual questionnaire and the reporting standards of, of the organizations can sometimes be um, more complex to translate, but I think it's a work in progress and I think PRI understands that too. And we think that in a, in a small way, um, if we can commit to doing that, if we can make voluntary disclosures and we can work with PRI to find a format that is relevant to other intermediaries, there is a lot of scope amongst the PRI membership for firms that might be aligned to Islamic financial protective practice or also to perhaps to emerging markets rather than evolved asset management practice in the sustainable and responsible subsets. I think there's a lot of opportunity to engage with our core markets and our core regions. Um, in terms of RFI, there's lots of work ongoing and RFI is, is, is a different proposition um, and because of RFI's approach to the membership as an observer member and again as an acknowledged intermediary, uh, we've taken the opportunity to work together to look at how we might best evolve our reporting and disclosure and in fact as a smaller firm that's involved in the industry and also is committed to a sustainable and responsible approach. We're also working with um, one of the, um, um, 
the RFI trustees, Dow Bickery, as a consultant to help us shape our, our policy format and also to produce a case study for RFI that might be used as a transparent and disclosed illustration of how smaller independent firms like DDCAP uh, embrace um, policy formation and business development with reference to sustainability and responsibility. I think that's one of the things we found with bridging the gap between responsible finance, responsible investment, and Islamic finance is that there is a gap in terms of how firms are structured, even where they look uh, similar to, to conventional equivalents, and sometimes in, uh, in some cases where they don't. Uh, and building in some flexibility with the way that financial, the financial sector approaches responsible finance seems to be an important, an important way forward to, to expand the engagement outside of the, the firms that fit more of a traditional financial institution model. I would, I, I, I would totally agree that. It, it's certainly not a, a one-size-fits-all. And, you know, in a curious way, given the experience that we have from, from um, Islamic financial sector processes and, 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 and demands, where it, it's similarly not one-size-fits-all. You know, sometimes we lament the fact that there is divergence, sometimes driven by, by Sharia, sometimes di driven by, by business considerations that mean that we have to take a, a different approach to how we develop and how we evolve. Actually, it's, it's a good learning experience and it's something that we bring here because we are bringing different perspectives of a different but growing and equally relevant um, market subset for sustainable and responsible practice to the global industry um, and and actually now is an excellent point for reflection and that's the value that we find in 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 being a member of RFI as well um, that it, it gives our particular community um, a collective voice and actually a point of lobbying into into the into the organizations that support the broader global industry so that there is there is consideration of, of how we how we might proceed and how we can be included that's great I think that really um, that really follows on some of the work that you've done over the years in terms of being involved with the UK government's task force on Islamic finance that led to the debut Sukuk issuance by the UK government uh, you've been an advocate as an RFI trustee for more connectivity between responsible finance and Islamic finance, and you've been a consistent supporter of more opportunity for women in Islamic finance. And all of this gets to the point that you made about how do we how do we bring these together uh, in an inclusive framework? A lot of that work is now coming uh, coming full circle. We're starting to see both both a commitment from Islamic finance and a commitment from responsible finance to reach out and engage more. Yes, that's true. Because that, you know, there are sensitivities and there will continue to be. In terms of the connection point of, of the two communities, you know, it interests me to see that to an extent initially, um, some of the outreach was from the existing uh, SRI-focused communities from the international marketplace and predominantly asset managers actually who were looking towards Islamic finance which is still to an extent seen as um, an evolving uh, market market sector that's based on banking practice which means lots of liquidity 
still lots of requirement for diversification of asset classes, for new asset types, for extending um, the profile of Sharia compliant transactions, extending tenors, you know, looking at, at, at assets that will be appropriate for other Sharia compliant investors, for pension funds, for example, for other longer term investors and endowments. And that that proved to be one point for initial exploration. I mean, I, re I remember a few years ago when the Malaysian authorities had said to the state pension funds, um, you know, you need to create a Sharia compliant pension class for your, for your pension holders. And that caused the state pension funds to bring in their best of breed global asset managers to have a dialogue about how to create that in a Sharia compliant way. And this is only a few years ago. And I was um, privileged enough to be invited to make a presentation to, to some of those managers who were saying, we are absolutely fascinated by what you're doing in Islamic finance. And, and what we like about your Sharia compliant market is that you are very prosperous prescriptive we don't quite know how to connect and engage with it but actually we don't see your sharia screening processes as negative and you know personally i hate the fact that we even within industry tend to talk about negative screening actually there's some very positive impact that comes out of our screening processes and i think that we should we should talk that up quite considerably because the other sri um, focused communities who maybe until now have developed off of different interpretation of, of, of SRI and, and, and which particular factors um, and influences and focuses they're adopting and why. They quite like Sharia's prescription, uh, particularly around you know, equity classes and so on, where we're pretty certain there's not divergence there. We know what sort of equities are admissible and what aren't from a Sharia perspective. So in terms of that, that inclusion and connectivity, it's been quite good news. Now, coming back from our side and, 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 and the Sharia compliance side, I think those of us who have been working within RFI as well as within the marketplace have been cognizant of certain sensitivities. And, and, and we have to proceed carefully because this was a, a new discussion. And probably in speaking to asset managers, the asset management piece of, of, of the Sharia compliant universe is probably the most under-evolved at the moment for, for, for one reason or another that time doesn't permit discussion about right now. But actually, there's a good opportunity there still to make that connectivity. But we know that we have those within our core industry that are concerned that Islamic finance should not become another subset, that it should maintain its, its own unique values and the contribution that it can make on the grounds of being a Sharia-compliant, uh, Sharia faith-based um, financial services sector, which it certainly is. Nothing will ever change that. And there is nothing about this engagement or interaction with other SRI communities that means that we, in my personal opinion, that we have to dilute um, our, all that we adhere to in any way to work together. I think it just expands the prospects. And, and what it does is we all know that, that um, Sharia compliant finance is based on substance as well as form. And there's a driving influence to look more towards um, impact through Makassid al-Sharia, which has become a focus in recent years and, and, and that, that consideration should go beyond jurisprudence. And I know it's something that we've been talking about with members of our own Sharia supervisory board. But this is a truly exciting point to see how Islamic financial practitioners can play their part
in the global move towards consideration of social and environmental factors and how they shape the future development of, of global Islamic financial practice. I think that's a, a really good forward-looking way to, to wrap this up. Um, one final question. We have the RFI Summit coming up in a bit over a month, the first time it will be held in the Middle East. What are you looking forward to at the RFI Summit this year, and how do you think it can help uh, drive forward this, this convergence and this conversation about the links between responsible and Islamic finance? Yeah, well, I, I am uh, really very much looking forward to the summit this year. Um, clearly, it's going to be a point to access broader connectivity between the various communities within the SRI marketplace. Um, but also, it's an opportunity, particularly given that it's taking place in Abu Dhabi and within the Middle East, for the region to engage with an international financial community that's so keen to explore the unique value proposition of Islamic finance and identify still how that can combine with the objectives and intentions of those other parts of the SRI community to forge new collaborative arrangements and partnerships that will prospectively broaden and further evolve the products of both, whether they're Sharia compliant or focused on sustainability. You know, they can equally well be focused on both and informing those collaborations. You know, again, we're, we're moving closer to the deliverables that we're committing to under the, under the sustainable development goals. Um, previous RFI summits have taken place in Malaysia, more recently in Europe. And the, I think they've shown, and I've given a few illustrations when I've talked about um, you know, the pension funds and, 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 and Malaysia, that those exploratory discussions have the ability to transform into solid offerings. And at the end of the day, we are financial practitioners. We are invo involved in commercial business. And whether you're looking at sustainability and responsibility or you're in the Sharia compliance space, you know, we're, we, there, is, there is no issue with being commercial. So if we consider the sustainable, responsible and Islamic capital market issuances that we're seeing emanating now from Southeast Asia uh, with sovereign issues from Indonesia uh, and also the evolving responsible consumer product suite that's resulting uh, from the Islamic banking sector led values based intermediation initiative in Malaysia. These are all developments and I know that all these parties have connected into earlier RFI summit. In terms of diversity of opportunity, I think we get to see a green capital markets issuance by a Middle Eastern sovereign. There's solid prospects of that happening in the not too distant future. Um, and in the meantime, we're seeing, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that strong overarching theme of Makassid al-Sharia that's supporting impact-focused investment initiatives of the Islamic banks and financial institutions throughout the GCC. And as examples of that, you know, we've had Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank um, through um, engaged with, 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 with RFI since the beginning. Um, we're also aware that Dubai Islamic Bank is, 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 is very engaged in, in, in work themes that, that, that relate to, to impact. Um, and in terms of multilaterals, the Islamic Development Bank in, in the last few years has been at, at the forefront of, of redeploying the funds that it raises into impact-based situations through its transform and engage platforms. So I'm really looking forward um, to hearing what the Middle East, uh, what the GCC and 
Abu Dhabi through the ADGM have to contribute to that discussion. I think all of those in attendance are going to be really exciting, excited to hear about that too. And then finally, I have to mention the support disruption for good, the SDG challenge. Um, the challenge identifies fintech companies whose products and offerings have already demonstrable market traction and they combine with technology that assists the financial sector to widen the scope and elevate the impact of responsible finance activities. Um, technology businesses that are applying within the terms of the challenge have developed applications that this year, because there's a different theme of the challenge awards each year, but this year they'll assist financial institutions in measuring, managing or mitigating their indirect exposure to waste, emissions to air and water and workplace safety and health. Um, and they're being uh, initially screened and then the shortlisted applicants will be reviewed by an independent jury panel and, and will deliver their presentations to the delegates um, at the summit. It's exciting. I think the um, Challenge Awards are now into their third year and we are very excited at DDCAP that we are one of the sponsors of those awards. It's our first year in, but like most things, you know, we see commitment as being medium term. Um, and I think this is a very engaging and interesting um, part of the summit itself because those awards are, are, are open to businesses from all sorts of um, financial sector and technology disciplines and uh, it's, it's, it's a good point to, to, to show what, what, what they can contribute to the uh, evolving proposition. Thank you. Uh, I think that's a good way to wrap it up and uh, um, we have a lot more, a lot more to come in terms of announcement about the summit um, and we look forward to having you there in Abu Dhabi. Thank you very much. Um, similarly, looking forward to being there and I am absolutely sure it's going to be a first-rate event as it has been in previous years. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Responsible Finance Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean. If you want to stay updated about RFI's work, including the upcoming RFI Summit, you can find the link to subscribe to our newsletter on our Twitter feed, at RFI Foundation. You can also follow me at Sharing Risk. If you have suggestions for future guests or questions about the summit, please drop us an email at info at rfi-foundation.org or tweet it to us at RFI Foundation. Hope you'll join us for our next podcast.